winner of this year's Booker Prize for Literature was Sri Lankan writer Shenan Karanatilika. The book was The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, and it's a satire set against the backdrop of Sri Lanka's civil war. Mali is a war photographer who was killed and finds himself in a very bureaucratic afterlife, trying to find out who is responsible for his death. I'm delighted to be joined on the programme this evening by Shahan Karanatilika. Shahan, congratulations, first of all, on, on the Booker Prize win. A few weeks later, has it begun to sink in? Has it begun to... What are your thoughts on it when you start to gather uh, around what this prize actually means? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it's um, it's it's been slightly longer than seven moons since the <laughs> since the win, and um, what a crazy couple of weeks it's been. Um, but yeah, I, I have managed to get some sleep, take a couple of days off, and um, yeah, I haven't kept. Uh, there's four thousand unanswered emails and uh, and texts and and so on, and so I, I've managed to. Uh, keep up with the Twitter and uh, the reaction back home. But yeah, I, I don't know if you comprehend the enormity of it in such a short time, because look, you're writing novels, sitting in Colombo in the middle of economic crisis, writing these things. Uh, you you like it to travel far, but yeah, I never thought it would travel this far. So yeah, it's gradually sinking in or seeping in, <laughs> sinking. But um, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed the ride so far and been surprised by it. And, yeah, I've, I've sleep is the, sleep is a good thing, and I managed to get plenty of that lately. Yeah, so, well, yeah. That, that's that's no bad thing uh, indeed, and I, I like the way you refer to it. it's been more than seven moons, because seven moons, of course, yeah. is 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 very important. It's a very important number in terms of your winning novel, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. You might explain why Mali, what he has to kind of sort out within the space of seven moons, which is effectively seven nights, is what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it's um, it's based on e- Asian folklore. It's certainly there in Sri Lanka, where we um, seven days after the uh, after death, we so we have a almsgiving because the superstition is that the spirit hovers around for for seven days before it goes on to its next uh, next place. And you see this replicated in a lot of uh, in Tibetan Buddhism and Hinduism and a lot of Asian cultures. And it was. I was writing a murder mystery um, at the heart of it. It's a lot of other things as well, but uh, this was the perfect ticking clock. So he has seven moons or seven nights to one. He's he's a war photographer, and this is set during during ni- 1989-90, so the height of the civil war, and there were multiple other conflicts happening at the same time. So yeah, at, at the basic level, the engine of the plot is that uh, he has seven days to find out who killed him and why. But he's also as a war photographer, he's taken. Uh, a lot of images that haven't been seen of Sri Lanka's atrocities and 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 the Sri Lankan tragedies. So he wants that to be the world to see his photograph. So that's also the ticking clock of. So he has seven moons to do that. But also he's got to make peace with what what his life was and the relationships he had. Um, so that's that's really the seven moons of the title. And I think when you're writing such a complex novel, because there's a lot, uh, there's a ghost story, yeah. there's a murder mystery. You know, there's supernatural philosophizing, a few jokes. So when you're doing that, it's good to have an anchor. And I think the Seven Moons was that. We provided that for you. But it is interesting that you say that, uh, you know, uh, from the outset, really, you were writing a murder mystery. Um, and I know you've mentioned authors like Agatha Christie, John Le Carre and, and, and others of, of that ilk who were kind of on your shoulder in some ways as you wrote the book, which doesn't sound like the type of book that would win the Booker Prize. There's a, there are a lot of other things going on 
on and we will get to those. But that particular aspect, that engine behind the book, how important was that to you? So uh, Agatha Christie uh, recently followed me on Twitter. I was so <laughs> delighted, uh, even though she's passed away from many moons now. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was Agatha Christie with a tick. So it obviously was authentic something. So, yeah, that was wonderful for me. That made my week. Um, yeah. So now my first book, Chinaman, was, uh, you know, it's seen as a, a book about cricket it's, uh, and a book about, well, it's a book about a drunken sports writer who goes on this quest to find this forgotten cricketer. And it was about a lot of other things. Uh, but I saw it primarily as a detective story, a simple missing person story. So except the two detectives were tr- two drunk old men who had done nothing but watch Sri Lankan cricket and uh, Andrew Garrett. So, but I, I, I do like those genre cues when, when actually putting these ideas together and so with this, the same thing, even though I, I set out to write a ghost story and I was talking about uh, the many victims of Sri Lanka's 30-year war, um, and I was writing at, at its conclusion, to 2009, the war ended. So that's when I was thinking about the book. And um, so the idea was a ghost story where why not let the victims of the war speak and let them talk about what they know about Sri Lanka, well, what they feel about Sri Lanka and what it did to them. Um, so that was really... Mm. You know, so there's a lot of ideas, a lot of politics in it. So I think this kept me grounded uh, that the fact that, okay, this is what yeah. the plot has to do and you can, you can put the other adornments on it, but it has to do that. Yeah, and, and, and you've, you've touched on some of the aspects of the, the historical aspects of what was going on in Sri Lanka. Let's go, it's set in the, in the 1989 period. Uh, let's give us a little bit more of a picture of the state of Sri Lanka at that point in time. You you were a, a teenager, so I'm guessing that possibly yeah. a, a, how much awareness were you? Or was there for you of what was going on as, as you tell us what was going on at the time? Mm. Well, completely unaware. I won't say blissfully, but just, I mean, I was a teenager and you know, I mean, you know, uh, in Ireland, growing up with the with, with this perpetual conflict that it's just been around you all through your childhood, and so eighty three is when when they trace it, though the conflict has has deeper roots. Uh, but we so we had an ethnic conflict between um, the 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 Tamil separatists, the uh, Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, the LTT, and the, the Sri Lankan Army. So that that. It started off in 83 and it, it went on for three decades. Uh, and while that was happening, there was also a, a Marxist insurrection in the South, working class youth against the government. And then you had government death squads who were you know, abducting, disappearing uh, young radicals. And to add to this, you had the Indian peacekeeping force, which had come to keep peace, but of course got involved in a proxy war with all, all these parties. And also there were different, there were gun runners and foreign interests. And if I was writing a thriller, you'd say there's way too many plots here. You, you need to make it simpler. But this is the reality of what yeah. 89 was. And and as a teenager, you don't have this awareness. And I was also living in Colombo and I was so insulated from it. We, we grew up with, there were bomb blasts and assassinations and curfews, but we weren't suffering like the rest of the country was. Um, and so it just seemed like, if I'm setting a ghost story where the victims of the war are speaking, this seemed like the perfect time because I, I remember times where uh, you'd see bodies on the side of the road and you wouldn't know why they were killed or by whom because there were so many different yeah. factions and different reasons for it. And um, yeah, I, I, I researched and picked a few unsolved murders in this time and uh, and 
let those ghosts speak. And that was really the start of this this journey. Yeah, because it is interesting, Mali, who is, who is our narrator, who is our guide through this book, trying to solve his own murder, his own murder, this war photographer uh, who has who has this cache of pictures that certain interested parties certainly would love to get their hands on. And you might think, mm, well, they, they, they're after him or they might well be after him. But he gets to speak mm. to, to these ghosts from that period of Sri Lankan history. You know, he gets to speak to child mm. soldiers. He gets to speak to people who are responsible for getting rid of the bodies, disposing of bodies, all sorts of people that he meets there. Mm. Um, how haunted... A place is Sri Lanka. How haunted were you by those voices that you that you give you know a chance to them to speak to Mali in your in your novel? Well, initially, part of my research was I visited a lot of haunted houses, cemeteries, and uh, yeah, got some friends, and we went on a trip around the island, and um, I never saw a ghost, and um, you know I'm thankful for that. I have no intention of mm. encountering one, but. Um, um, what was interesting for me and sociologists, anthropologists have noted this, that wherever there's been tragedy, wherever there's been massacres or uh, people went dis- were, were disappeared, there are ghost stories. And so that was more interesting to me. Um, and like I said, I, did, I didn't see any ghosts and I didn't, didn't even use much of that research. But I thought the conceit, the idea of if a ghost is humans who... Um, uh, died with a sense of injustice, uh, who were taken before their time, then Sri Lanka must be crawling with ghosts. That's where, where I began from. And yeah, it's certainly haunted. Um, the, the 89 is just one year in, in, in my lifetime. And, and it's also, it's almost, it's a distant memory. I don't think people, many people were talking about 83 or 89 because we've had so many catastrophes since then. Um, just a few years ago, we had the Easter attacks. And uh, I remember at that time, there were a lot of narratives and conspiracy theories and a few investigations, but nothing was really resolved. And I, I, I fear that has already faded from memory because now we're dealing 2022. Sri Lanka's had a colorful year, to say the least, and we're talking about the calamities there. And so we are we are haunted by these things, but I don't know if we have learned from them or even addressed them properly. It seems the Sri Lankan tendency to think, OK, well, that's all in the past. No point digging that up. Let's just move on. And it just keeps moving from tragedy to tragedy. And so my explanation was there are a lot of restless spirits and ghosts Mm. who are uh, making trouble and whispering bad ideas into people's ears. Um, A lot of supernatural elements, but it's based in reality. Yeah, so while (laughs) you have these mythologies and supernatural elements within that, there is a very much a reality and a historical reality that, that you are dealing with. Was there a sense? Yeah. Was there a sense of hope in two thousand and nine when the war ended? You know, and obviously more recently, people will be aware of the uh, the Rajapaksa family, and the, basically they were run out of the country and run out of their their various yeah. residencies. People will be aware of that series of events. Was there a hope in two thousand and nine that has kind of faded or disappeared since when the war ended in two thousand and nine? Yeah, certainly. I, I can't explain the the what it was for us. So, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and this was, and we'd had ceasefires and uh, peace agreements and all of that, but we thought this is just going to continue. And so there was this sense in 2009, and we always say, if, if we if we end this war, this country will be unstoppable. Suddenly that happened. And I remember a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of Sri Lankans all over the world who've been scattered by the various conflicts. Uh, and, and, a lot of young people were coming back and investment was coming in and there was hope. And um, it just, 
the disappointment we felt when, yeah, like you say, the Rajapaksas were uh, who who ended the war. Uh, instead of learning from those mistakes, we saw again race baiting happening, cronyism, uh, voices being silenced, and um, I mean, I can go through the entire decade. There's plenty of novels to be written, yeah. uh, but then then. Yeah, fast forward to to today or the last couple of years, we saw this unprecedented economic crisis uh, after COVID, uh, and uh, the populace got onto the streets and were mocking these guys who they feared before, and um, yeah, ran them all out of town. And um, it's it, it is quite depressing and demoralizing when you think we we had that moment. Okay, did we learn nothing from thirty years of war? And twelve years later, we're not unstoppable. We we're uh, on the risk of bank, well, we declared bankruptcy. So yeah, it is with this, and I was. It's over the years, these years that I was writing this novel, and even though I, I was writing what seemed like ancient history, even though it's thirty, forty years ago, it seemed like yeah, it was the idea that we should be digging up our past and learning from it because we just keep repeating it. Yeah, it's an interest because one of the debates within the novel itself is between a character called Senna, who quite definitely wants revenge and wants scores to be settled in terms of dealing with the past and then there are those yeah. you know, it, 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 Mal, Mal, Mali is making has to make this decision over this, the seven moons whether to walk towards the light and the suggestion is if I suppose if you walk towards the light you're kind of going well let's kind of whitewash all that stuff or we certainly have to move away from it and, and forget about it. Mm. Are you any clearer on an answer to that question which, which, which route to go having written the novel? Well, I mean, no spoilers, but I think the novel has its answer there. But you're yeah. right the, in terms of the conflict that Mali Mali faces. Um, yeah, with two characters giving him advice, one saying, "Yeah, you need to go and uh, uh, avenge what, the wrongs of the past," and another saying, "It's it's gone. You need to move on." And this is the debate that Sri Lanka has. And um, I mean, I think my position is perhaps can be inferred from the novel once you get to the end of it. But mm. uh, it seems like. Yeah, forgetting and ignoring hasn't worked for Sri Lanka. And I believe um, even, yeah, like I say, I thought I was writing history, but if the book makes people, especially the young in Sri Lanka, go back to those periods and read about 83 and 89, which I don't believe is really being taught. We're, we're taught about our ancient kings and our Dutch and British colonizers, but I don't know if we are taught the last 40 years, and that's that's what the young need to know about. Um so I don't know if Sri Lanka's come any closer to the answer. Um, and I think it's clear that I think we need to examine our past and examine ourselves if Sri Lanka is supposed to move forward and avoid these calamities. That's my opinion. But um, yeah, yeah, I hope Sri Lanka also yeah. takes that into account. And uh, Mali, uh, Mali tells us at the beginning, or he thinks somebody he refers to the fact that if he had a business card, it would say photographer, gambler and slut. Uh, those are three quite three quite different attributes to give any character. Is he the right guy to send out on this mission to solve the solve the problems of Sri Lanka? No, but he's the guy who chose to do it. Um, so yeah, his his character arrived very slowly over overdraft, and it was based on a real victim of of nineteen eighty nine, uh, Richard de who was. Mm who's actually a playwright, dramatist, activist, uh, journalist, but he was also a closeted gay man. And um, in the end, Mali evolved into a war photographer because that that gave uh, you know, the thing under his bed, the, the box of photographs. That was a key part of the plot. Yeah. But him being a gambler and a closeted gay man, and 
yeah, I didn't know you could say slapped on, on radio, but <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, but yeah, a promiscuous gay man. It just it all seemed to fit because I was trying to explain. I mean, me who grew up with middle-class Colombo guilt that I was living. And Colombo functioned, you know, as as you do when when there's war going on, pretending it didn't happen. And why would this middle-class Colombo boy go to these dangerous places? And it, I, I think it explained one was the guilt, but also he was very good um, yeah. at, at, at taking photographs. And he thought it was his duty to bear witness to these things that yeah. weren't being talked about and naively thought that this would raise awareness and stop the atrocities. Yeah, uh, and and I think his sexuality, that's the only element from reality that I kept, but it made sense that this is why, because he can't express himself. This is 1989. So uh, it, it's was a much less liberated city than it is now. And he had to go to these dangerous places in order to be himself. Yeah. So I think all the pieces of his character came together. And um, yeah, that's why, uh, that's why he has that interesting uh, visiting card. <laughs> resume. Resume yeah. on his card. Final question then. Um, given that uh, Mali deals with all of these ghosts in this liminal space, you've had a message from the liminal, uh, uh, the Twitter sphere from, from Agatha Christie. Any other writers speaking to you from liminal, liminal spaces of another nature? Uh, no, no, I haven't. I haven't started to hear voices yet. Um, <laughs> but... Um, um, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut is there throughout, I think, both of my books. Yeah. Yeah, this voice that is um, talking about what civilization has done to itself and uh, what that humanity is going to wipe itself out, but done in such a, it's, it's a riot, all his books. And I think that's that's the voice that I keep turning to, him and George Saunders and Douglas Adams, talking about very grim topics, but the books are almost yeah. joyful. And, and that's what I aspire to, I suppose. Well, listen, lovely um, to have spoken. Yeah. Lovely to have spoken to you, Shahan, and thanks very much for being with us this evening. Congratulations once again on the win. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. Not at all. That's Shahan Karanatilika, author of The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, which is published by Sort of Books, and he is, and that book is the winner of the Booker Prize 2022. The Irish poet and novelist Leland Bardwell realised from childhood that a writing life was inevitable. In her memoirs, she recorded, quote, since the age of six, writing had be, has been a, not an ambition, but a condition. Born in India to Irish parents, Bardwell lived all over the world before settling in North Sligo. Among her works of poetry are The Mad Cyclist, The Fly and the Bed Bug, and she also published four novels, including Girl on a Bicycle and There We Have Been. She has been referred to as the forgotten woman of Irish literature and Cork poet and academic Elaine Nicolinon has said that Bardwell's work was witty, full of sharp, intimate honesty, full of truth and surprises. This year marks the centenary of the birth of Leland Bardwell and I'm delighted to be joined in studio uh, this evening by her son, the composer John McLaughlin. John, we, we spoke with Paula Meehan and Rita Ann Higgins and the publisher Brian Layden in, in February about a new collection of your mother's poems. This is uh, my my name suspended in the air, Leland Bardwell at 100. Each poem was selected by a fellow writer. But the centenary runs right through until February of next year. Two new books and a festival. That's that's what you've set out for yourself between now and February. Now, you wrote yourself in the introduction to The Heart and the Arrow about going through your mother's, quote, filing system uh, in her shed in Sligo. Tell us a little bit about rummaging through that family, that, that shed and the family home. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, in a way, it wasn't a family home. It was merely where she spent the last 25 odd years of her mm. life. Um, so she had a sort of a very cheap wooden wardrobe in, in a shed, but that shed had a piano and a computer and was her writing spot. Uh but before that, wherever she lived, the same sort of wooden wardrobe actually came with her and yeah. she would have kept uh, works in progress, really, you know. Yeah. So there was all manner of ancient poems and bits and pieces. Now, to be fair, uh, she would have actually given Trinity College Dublin most of her papers at some point in something like 2006 or eight. And um, what she kept in the shed then was just things she felt were still alive, you know, unfinished poems and the odd thing. Yeah. So... If, 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 how long was she? When did she stop writing? Because you're saying things that she felt were were still live at that point in her life. Well, yeah, I couldn't put a date on that. In, yeah. in her own mind, she never stopped. Mm. But she did have a stroke towards the end, you know, two, something like three years or something before she died. Or maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe it was more like seven. But the mm. point is that at that point, she could no longer read and write as a result of the stroke. So... Um, but she got the power of writing back. She taught herself to read again and she was doing things like proofreading work and people were reissuing. There was actually quite a lot of reissues, five reissues in the 2000s, you know, and a couple of translations into German. She wasn't on hands with those, of course. But anyway, the point is that she was very active and um, carried on. Um, yeah, so she was she was trying to write poems and, uh, you know, towards the end, they, they weren't making any sense. But, yeah, because she did actually get a little bit of dementia towards the very end. Yeah, because I'm So she I'm never stopped. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering how difficult that yeah. that rummage through mm -hmm. the, the wooden wardrobe then, as you put it, put it was, you know, because you, you knew and knew your mother's work from when she was at the height of her powers. So mm -hmm. going through this later mm -hmm. material, how difficult was that? What were the emotions around that? Well, I was only, uh, I suppose I, I managed to screen them off. I was looking for the, the good poems that were mm. really standing up. There was a lot of scribblings then about sort of more or less rantings and things which mm. we wouldn't want to be going into and we wouldn't want to be presenting to the public, <laughs> sort of uh, going over, uh, you know, uh, in her mind things. You know, it's very hard to know what was she thought was a poem and what wasn't, but it was very clear at the same time what was a poem and what wasn't, if you follow my logic. Yes, yeah. Well, you, there's there's a big event that, that we'll talk about in a minute, uh, which takes its name from one of your mother's poems. Mm -hmm. uh, the event is called A Single Rose. We'll go into the details of what that is shortly. But can we hear the poem? Absolutely. A Single Rose. Yeah, sure. So, uh, A Single Rose by Leland Bardwell. I have willed my body to the furthering of science, although I'll not be there to chronicle my findings. I can imagine all the students poring over me. My God, is that a liver? And those brown cauliflowers are lungs? Yes, sir, a fine example of how not to live. And what about the brain? Alas, the brain? I doubt if this poor sample ever had one. As with his forceps, he extracts a single rose. A single rose by Leland Bardwell, read for us this evening by her son John McLaughlin, ahead of an event at the at, which is part of the centenary commemorations of Leland Bardwell's birth, uh, which is called a single rose. There's a wonderful wit uh, within that, John. Is that very much? Is that your mother, if you like, encapsulated her personality? Is it in that poem? Yes, completely. Uh, and in many of her other poems. I mean, and in her, you know, life when she was around, she was certainly uh, mm. very witty and very entertaining. And uh, this is, you know... And on was, the basis yeah. of that poem, like, enjoyed life. <laughs> oh, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes, of course. That's about, yeah, overusing your body and so forth. I mean, she did go to, you know, 94. Um 
Yeah, you lived to 94 and uh, it was it just probably seemed like a bit of a minor miracle that she did so. You know, yeah, absolutely. But she did give up things like cigarettes and alcohol for the last Tour. bit of her life. <laughs> Fair enough. A bit is enough to be given it up, I suppose, which may have been her thought. Um, but obviously in a poem, it's always dangerous when when we have the eye from, from the poet to presume that is the poet, his or herself. What about when you read in, in her novels then? Mm-hmm. Do you get a sense in the novels that the various characters that you've come across are aspects of your mother are in there and, and what particular ones spoke to you in that way? Yes, in the novels um, it's quite a tricky read when you are her son or or indeed if you just knew her very well because mm. you do go, well, okay this central female is her, sort of but then again it isn't because fictional elements come in. In in a short story, you know, there's one, or indeed I think it's the novel um, yeah, Mother to a Stranger where the central character is a concert pianist and Leland wasn't, you know, and things like that, you know. Um, but there are other characters as well. I mean, lots of her men friends are in the books and so forth uh, and people she knew. Things that also overlap with her memoir, people I never met from a way back in the 40s and 50s and they all crop up in the novels. Her second novel, for example, yeah. Lots of strange characters, you know, communists and addicts and all sorts. And most people reading that wouldn't realise that she actually mingled with people of that ilk totally and was, you know, she's not writing reportage, but she's mining her life as a resource, you know. So if I read the memoir and then read the novels, might yeah. I be surprised at characters from one book seeping into the other? Well, it's just that in the memoir, she has, she's she's very specific about certain episodes mm. and then says, and in the memoir, she will say, and you can read about this in my novel, you know, That yeah. London Winter, for example. Yeah, so she she's not pretending anything. Yeah. Other Absolutely. than I used this piece of real life stuff for my for my writing itself, how close were you in terms of talking to her about about her writing? I mean, did she were you an early reader of her work? Did she share stuff with you at a point, hmm. you know, before it was ready to go anywhere near a publisher? Right. Yeah. Well, I don't think she ever shared anything much before it was ready to to anyone. Yeah. Mm. She was she would have been a polisher and a burnisher of work, you know, and sometimes she would have showed me something and I'd have said, well, you've polished this too far, but I haven't seen any drafts or anything. you know. (laughs) So there's nothing we can do. No, I mean, you see, I guess when you're just a teenager or something like that. Yeah, I think at 19, you you had the temerity to point some stuff out to her, I think. Yeah, I probably was. Yeah, I was probably like that a lot even earlier than that. But for sure, I remember reading a particular novel and saying, oh, well, uh, it's quite a, a tricky read. And she said, well, it, it went through about 25 drafts. And of course, I just thought, well, that's what the problem is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I realised now that actually I was wrong because you really just need to read her work with some attention. And I was probably not doing that, you know. Yeah. In other words, it's not a very popular uh, airport style read. None of her prose is, but you have to figure out, well, now who's talking now? And sometimes you just have to, your eye just has to go back up and down a few times. But it's all there and it's all beautifully paired back. And the pairing back is sometimes intense for the reader, but rewarding to get through. Yeah, I'm wondering then about uh, in the final dinner party, the central character there really feels that her artistic life Mm -hmm. was not a success had you any sense that your mother had that feeling about her work? Yeah, I was. Uh, I certainly mused on the thought when I came across that part of that story because I I hadn't really thought of it before, but because I was rummaging through the the aforementioned material, mm. I realised that she was um, there were things in there like film scripts and TV treatments and a number of plays that never made it to the stage. So I thought, well, you know, she obviously at some certain points thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I broke into these areas, you know? So that's uh, that made me aware of the notion that she probably had moments of ambition, but 
wouldn't every artist, you know? So it's not it's not really such a big surprise, to be fair. And as well as the artistic side, there was another poem that I wanted to get you to read, which very much um, spoke, uh, speaks about a very personal connection that she had. This is a poem called Seven Rings in Memory of Steffi. Maybe you'd set up for me who this is about because there's something very immediate and touching about it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, Steffi was a neighbour sort of thing in in the country sense of, I don't know, a couple of kilometres away or whatever. And uh, she would have come around and, you know, come to parties or come to just dinner or whatever. Um, my own personal memory of Steffi is only one time I actually happened to be up at the same time as Steffi was in the house and we were having a bit of a shindig and a shelf fell down on top of her head, which was most embarrassing. But uh, we won't go into that <laughs> any further. So the poem is called Seven Rings and it was published in the Cahach. So therefore it wasn't in one of her books at all. Hmm. This was a late uh, poem published by Slago Library. Seven Rings in Memory of Steffi. She rang me seven times, the dying woman. Seven dying rings on my answering machine. Seven times calling my name, yet I was not there to hear her. My name, suspended in the air, will float there forever. She wanted me to hold her voice in the air, so as the air would keep it for her. But she went, holding my name, as the thorn holds the web the spider has woven. That's seven rings in memory of Steffi, in memory of Steffi by Leland Bardwell. And finally, John, then we have the, the A Single Rose event. Lots of readings, discussions around your mother's work uh, and, and really keeping, keeping her memory alive through this centenary year. That's the plan. Absolutely. We even have some young writers writing new work in response to her work. Younger, let's say. (laughs) Younger writers. Well, thanks for coming in to us this evening. That's John McLaughlin. A Single Rose, a celebration of Leland Barber, takes place at The Model in Sligo three days from November the 11th. And you can find out full details on lelandbardwell.ie. And so, as always, on a Friday evening, time for our album reviews in the final half hour. First up will be singer-songwriter Eva Nessa Francis takes us uh, with her uh, on her journey of transformation and self-discovery on her second album called Protector. We'll bring here from Dundalk's The Mary Wallopers, much-beloved live act, bringing a fresh energy to an old tradition of their highly anticipated debut is what we'll be reviewing this evening. And finally, Kenneth Edmonds, better known as the 12-time Grammy winner, Babyface returns with Girls' Night Out an album of collaborations between the 90s producing legend and a new era of women artists. Let's start off with Nessa, uh, Aoife Nessa Francis. Following hot on the heels of her 2020 debut, Land of No Junction, is her new album, uh, with, it's called Protector. According to the last mixtape, it is as thrilling as it is hypnotic. We'll find out if Kate Brennan Hardig and John Marr agree shortly. But let's start with a track, the opening track, in fact, on the album, Way to Say Goodbye. Without you
say goodbye opening track from Aoife Nessa Francis and her new album Protector the, the John Marr and Kate Brennan Harding are reviewers on this Friday evening um, her debut album John Land of No Junction was released to much acclaim in 2020 and here we have hot on its heels I suppose you could say really the second album Protector who are we talking about when we talk about Aoife Nessa Francis uh, Aoife McCarthy uh, as she is known from Dublin Sally Noggin originally um as you mentioned, a, a really fine debut album. I was one of those people that gave it purple prose when it came out. I thought she it marked the arrival of a of a of a fantastic talent. And I think this album, which was made largely in lockdown, uh, recorded in Kerry, but a lot of it fashioned in Clare, where she relocated to in twenty twenty, um, really consolidates that talent. It's a it's a very beautiful album. That if the first one was all about promise and this one kind of lives up to it. And in case um, that open, it's the opening track on the album Way to Say Goodbye. There's a lot of heartbreak or certainly heartbreak and, and breakup seems to be uh, an important theme across the album. Yeah, totally. I mean, the thing is that she had come off the back of a huge tour. Uh, she had been extensively touring really around North America. And then, you know, relationship breakdown happened and also just, I suppose, catching up with herself. So when she moved, as uh, John said, to County Clare to make this album, this the the very opening um, song, Way to Say Goodbye, it just sort of starts with a bit of a jolt, which I always think is if you're stepping out in a new part of your life, you sort of stumble a little bit. But immediately you get immersed into this world, this this uh, retrospective sort of looking inside yourself and sort of reassembling yourself, taking yourself apart and, and putting yourself back together again. And John, um, the voice is really, her voice is so much a part of what she's doing here, but it has a very even and rounded, even tempo across all the songs. It it does. I mean, I I wouldn't I wouldn't describe it as laconic, but it feels almost as like like conversational in a way. Mm. There's an intimacy there, mm. and that's one of the things I love about uh, this album. You know, her, her her singing is beautiful, and there is she has a lot to impart. As as Kate mentioned, you know, she's obviously been through some trying times mm. uh, on a personal level, and and is capturing heartbreak in a fresh interesting and meaningful way there the, the, there is some beautiful playing on this album as well she's lined up some fantastic musicians mm. and and we can talk about some of them as well but what i love about this album is the fact that there's no showboating from the musicians the music is mm. there completely at her service and the songs are really strong, so they they are bare boned. They would work just with her and an acoustic guitar. Of course, having this colour yeah. adds so much more. Yeah, but she, the songs are there. Yeah, because she was in with us and she did a, a live session. It was just herself on the guitar and the pianist with her. And the songs, Kate, they, they do hold up. But they are, yes, the production on the album is full, but they're still quite, there's a bleakness across the album. Yeah, there's, well, there's bleak. It's kind of funny. It's like a just a position because they're, it, it's bleak. In, in ways, but it's rich and it's <laughs> there's a depth in it. Um, I read an interview there with her recently, um, well, recently, earlier today, uh, that she said she actually wanted the, the vocals to sound like Serge Gainsbourg, Histoire de Melody Nelson, which I think gives you an insight. And, you know, she really wanted an intimate portrayal of her own vocals. She wanted to hear her, her dry, her vocals sort of recorded dry so that people could feel like she was speaking to them. And so I guess... 
if you look at it from the perspective of her looking at her life and you enter this world where she's, you know, clearly in the west of Ireland. And for me, I felt that I could imagine very quickly the being, she's at the foothills of uh, Anaskal Mountain in County Kerry and she's just like surrounded by earth and it's earthy. It's an earthy yeah. sound, an earthy uh, flavour, I guess. Yeah, and, and if the opening track, Way to Say Goodbye, suggests something, what about when we get down to a track like Emptiness Follows? We kind of feel that mm. there's a real clearing out being done here. Let's have a listen. So just a little favourite there of Emptiness Follows from Ephanessa Francis. Um, lots going on there. John, overall, uh, this album and stars, please. I really liked it. Um, it's it it. There's eight tracks. Uh, you know, it's it's not over long. There, the, I suppose, if I was to quibble, the the tempo doesn't vary all that much, and maybe. There could have been a bit more light and shade, yeah. but I think it's a very solid four stars. Solid four from you, John. What are you saying, Kate? Um, I am saying three and a half, four out of five for me. It's an album that you need to be present to. It's an album that is not one that you just stick on in the background. So I think for me, I agree, John, around the tempo side of things. But to be honest, I also just had a bath a little while ago and I listened to it in the bath and it was perfect. So it's that kind of thing where you have to just completely be present to. I'm going to give it four out of five. All right. Be present and spotlessly clean when listening to it. <laughs> Clearly is the, is the advice there from Relax. Kate Brennan-Harding. Okay. That's um, uh, the, the first of our albums. Let's move on to album number two, The Mary Wallopers. Don't think you need to be in the bath to be listening to this. Let's start Definitely with the single. <laughs> it's impossible not to smile. Well, for me at any rate when I'm listening to The Mary Wallopers and that the, the lead single I think off the album, Cod Liver Oil and Orange Juice. Who are The Mary Wallopers, Kate Brennan Harding? <laughs> they are one of my favourite, favourite new bands at the moment. Uh, Andrew Hendy and Charles Hendy are brothers and Sean McKenna. And they've added to their repertoire. They have a, a mighty band now. I've seen them a number of times at festivals across uh, across Ireland during the year. And um, they are basically, they're a Dundalk trio who, they came about in 2016. And by 2019, they were making waves. They were really, they had released A Mouthful of Mary Wallopers, an EP, which Cod Liver Oil and the Orange Juice was yeah. on. But they've reworked that for this album. Yeah, so there's two different versions. But but um, when Ireland went into lockdown, they actually um, they have a makeshift bar in their front room and they started live streaming. Um, it was called Stay at Home with the Merry Wallopers and they had 40,000 people watching. They really kept people company and they really just thought outside the box, like, let's just keep going. Let's bring the energy and the vibrancy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and is it a mixture, John? I mean, they kept that kind of ho, ho, ho and ha, ha, ha thing going on. Is it a mixture of traditional songs and original material or what? what is the situation there? Yeah, it, there's a lot of originals here and it really is original. I mean, the, the, you know, and, and that song, which, which I love, but I feel it's a Marmite song. I think there's a lot of people listening to this that will go, oh my God, I don't want to hear any more of this. Well, in that case, <laughs> this band is not for you because that's representative of the madcap yeah. um, playfulness of this album. I mean, it's very much indebted to and enthralled to the kind of great 20th century uh, exponents of traditional Irish music, people like the Dubliners, the Clancy Brothers, but there's a freshness to it as well. I mean, bands like Lancome have really kicked the door down in terms of contemporary Irish trad and how exciting it can be. And there's no surprise really that that band's lead singer, Rady Pete, appears yeah, here on and, one of the sings, and, and sings on one of the songs here. And it's just, it's very much its own voice. I mean, I can hear, you can hear loud, you can hear the wee county in these songs. There's the, 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 the language is idiomatic, 
not just to Ireland but to that mm. particular part of Ireland and unlike Kate I've yet to have the pleasure of seeing them live but I really want to after this oh. because it feels as if they've galvanised yeah. what's really special about the live performance because it sounds so energetic and thrilling let's have a it listen really to, is Yeah let's have a listen to a bit of the track with Frost is All Over which is the one that features Rady Pete I think she's in the midst of the chorus here <laughs> We won't get we won't get to Rady's little bit is a bit too far into the song. But again, that full of energy, full of real verve in their singing divilment. there, Kit. Yeah, divilment, That's as John's saying. Would you agree, <laughs> Kit? I agree. There's absolute divilment. They're crack merchants completely. But I, there is also very solemn moments. There's very big political moments. There's moments commenting, yeah. you know, of the Irish working in London. There's, um, I think it's the Declan Bean original. And um, there's... Brilliant uh, version of The Butcher Boy on it as well. It really, yeah. really gets the darkness of that ballad. And they're motivated not by, you know, they're motivated by spreading the message and looking at the political landscape as well. And I think they do it and they traverse that incredibly well. Stars from you, Kate. Oh, it's four out of five for the album and five out of five for their live shows. I have to give them. They're just brilliant. (laughs) Okay, John. It's four out of five for the album for me as well. And you'll be five when you get to see them live. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) so. I'll be there with Kate at the front. You will be. (laughs) Let us move on to uh, Babyface, inescapable force in the 1990s, writing and producing for the likes of Boys to Men, TLC and Madonna. He's back with an album of collaborations featuring a host of new women artists. But is that 1990s magic still with him in 2022? Let's have a listen to a track called Keep On Keeps On Falling. Baby, baby, ain't no looking around in first place. So I love him even more in his worst day. He's always there for me. And I don't know why he don't ever give up. Go beyond and above, yeah. But every time he does, I'm right back at I keep on falling in that's uh, Keeps On Falling with Ella uh, uh, May or Ella May there from Babyface and Girls Night Out. Even the title of the album kind of bothers me slightly. Kate, <laughs> what do you think about what's going on here? Do we need this album and are the artists represented properly in, in their collaborations with Babyface? So that's a complicated question because I really admire and like the idea for the album. Babyface mm. is a phenomenal 12 Grammys. You know, yeah. he produced hits that we all know from Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Boys to Men, TLC, Madonna. Like he's he's col- colossal yeah. producer. And I love the idea of this because there are some amazing female artists out there that are looking for producers. And this is where he's put the woman front and centre, which I really admire. I hear and a but. I hear a but. Yeah, but... These were recorded. It's fascinating that they were recorded. He met them. They had one day to get to know each other and then they recorded a song at the end of it, which I think is really interesting. But I think that there could have been three or four singles from the album and the rest maybe go and work with the people themselves and come up with something yeah. and spend a bit more time. Yeah, I said the same thing, John. You know, I, I, I don't get the point of this album. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with Kate. I see the, the reasoning behind it, but it doesn't realise itself somehow. It, it doesn't. And I, I actually don't agree with Kate about the the, the number of singles that are possible from this. <laughs> I, there were very few standouts for me. I, I mean, it, it all felt grand. 
that that kind of damning okay. Hiberno English word. I mean, you know, the production was really slick and the vocals were really good and some of the sentiment was interesting, but it didn't amount to much. All right. Mm. Stars from you, John. I have a reason for uh, wanting to finish a bit earlier. Two. Two from you. What are you saying, Kate? I'm also saying two. And you're also saying two for Babyface and Girls Night Out. And I 